Dirigiert Gomerez in French. Welcome to Red Flag Radio, the socialist podcast where we talk about politics, theory and history from a revolutionary perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Emma Norton. And I'm Chloe Rafferty. And we're recording this podcast on stolen Gadigal land, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today we're talking about the first uh, gay and lesbian Mardi Gras in 1978. That is the radical LGBTI protest, which was notoriously repressed by cops kickstarting a campaign which dramatically changed the landscape uh, for gay rights and even won the right to protest in New South Wales. And we're joined uh, today by Diane Fields, who's a leading member of Socialist Alternative and is herself a 78er, so someone who was an activist in that wave of uh, protests around the first Mardi Gras. Welcome, Diane. Glad to be here. And Diane, we thought we might introduce you in a a less than conventional way, which is to uh, say a little bit about your rap sheet. Um, there are many famous Diane arrest stories um, that we like to talk about here in Sydney. Uh, one of my favourites, which was actually mentioned on a previous podcast that you were on, um, a about the Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War protests and the moratorium march, uh, was that as a teenager, I think you were 16, um, Diane was arrested and uh, the cops said because she was 16, she couldn't be charged. So she was released and snuck off and got back to the protest that she was told explicitly not to go to. Um, and that was to campaign against the Vietnam War. What's your favorite though, Chloe? Oh my God. So many great Diane Fields arrest stories. My favorite though um, is a really funny one, which is Diane getting arrested at the funeral of Kerry Packer. I just like um, the bolshiness of getting arrested at a funeral in general of some ruling class rich scumbag. Um, for the kids listening who don't maybe know who Kerry Packer is, Kerry Packer's like the other Rupert Murdoch. So he is like um, a media mogul um, and multimillionaire. I don't know if he was a billionaire back then. Um, and, you know, the Packer family, you know, some of the most right-wing people um, in media. Um, so, yeah, Diane got um, arrested at... <laughs> A protest at Kerry Packer's funeral. Yeah, well, those were good arrests. Uh, I think particularly the the one at the Vietnam Moratorium because I was underage and, in fact, everyone that was in the police van that we were taken from the protest in, every one of us was under 18 and the cops kind of looked at our birth dates, threw up their hands in horror and said, too much paperwork and then <laughs> gave us the instructions, don't go back and join the demo, go home, you know, be good in future and so on. But it's got a connection to Mardi Gras because uh, quite a few of the people that were arrested at Mardi Gras or at Mar- the first Mardi Gras in 78 were under 18. And I remember one of them, Johnny Whitehead, who's uh, still an activist uh, around these issues today, he was 16 at the time and he was at King's Cross where they were bashing people and dragging us into vans and so on. And the cop recognised Johnny. I mean, Johnny was a kind of street kid in the cross at the time and took one look at him and said, go home, mate. You're uh, you're too young. You'll be too much paperwork. <laughs> so they're always lazy. And I guess it's um, useful just to talk about some of your arrests to just convey to listeners that, like, Diane, you're not a single-issue activist. Um, and actually lots of the Mardi Gras activists that were involved in the first Mardi Gras were not 
only activists around um, their own oppression or LGBTI oppression, but they were, you know, part of the socialist left and saw themselves as activists against all of the injustices of capitalism. Oh, absolutely. I think that the early days of, you know, what was generally called the gay liberation movement in those days were full of people who were explicitly anti-capitalists, saw themselves as socialists, were part of the campaign because they wanted to destroy the system that oppressed themselves or others. And, you know, many of the people that were involved in the campaign in those early days were, as I was at the time myself, rampant heterosexuals. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about this era. So the um, gay and lesbian Mardi Gras happened in 1978, the the start of it all. Um, But, you know, before that, and really in that period as well, there was extremely, Australia was an extremely homophobic society. Um, There was huge amounts of like legal discrimination against people. Most gay people were very much still in the closet um, or, you know, very kind of underground. Um, So yeah, can you explain a bit what it was like? Well, it's a useful way to look at that whole period that things didn't start in 1978. That was pretty far into the whole process of gay liberation. Um, things had been happening really from the 1970, perhaps not the late, the late 1960s for a range of organisations that people had started to work out that we're in this era of radicalisation around a whole series of issues, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement in particular, And the women's liberation movement had come to Australia in 1970 and alongside that, the idea that, well, if women's liberation is a thing, gay liberation ought to be as well. And as I said before, a lot of this was taken up by people who were explicitly socialists who thought that capitalism is the problem, we need a revolution to destroy the whole system. So hence the name gay liberation, women's liberation, the connection to the national liberation movement in Vietnam against the whole anti-war movement kind of connected to that. So those things were important, I think, in that early period. But to understand how terrible things were in terms of the degree of oppression, you can go back to the first Mardi Gras in 78 Uh, Because one thing that happened after the first Mardi Gras, after those 53 arrests on the 24th of June 1978, was really revealing about how deep-seated homophobia was in Australian society. What did the Sydney Morning Herald, then as now some kind of liberal, smaller liberal alternative to the Daily Telegraph, the newspaper on which I had been brought up, by the way, the Sydney Morning Herald was meant to be so nice, so respectable, so more, so much more humane than the nasty tabloids. Well, Monday after the uh, after the arrests at the first Mardi Gras, they published the name, the full name, the age, the suburb in which you lived, and your occupation of the fifty three people that were arrested, and what happened as a result of that. A bunch of people lost their jobs. That was one of the first things. People lost their jobs because they were gay. Then a whole series of other people, sometimes the same people who lost more than their jobs, lost their families. That their parents found out that they were gay or lesbian or whatever and those parents then said, you're not welcome in the family home, you're not welcome in the family and so on. So they were absolutely cut off. And then there were others, particularly lesbian women, who lost their kids, lost their family in a more direct sense 
That is, their children were taken from them because they were obviously unfit mothers because they were not heterosexuals. And that's, a, that's just a bit of a summary, I think, of the kind of things that to be an LGBT person in that era meant that your life could be destroyed, you know, pretty much overnight as it was by the Sydney Morning Herald. And what was the state of the, the like, homophobic laws and discrimination in that sense? Yeah, well, in many ways, the kind of structural discrimination affected all of these popular attitudes and so on. So, um, as always, you know, being women, lesbians were kind of non-people. So, there weren't any specific laws about lesbianism, although in reality, just to be some kind of homosexual, as we were then called, meant that you were just regarded as a kind of a weird person, problematic and so on. But for gay men, there were laws and all gay male sex, consensual, whatever it was, whatever the age of the participants, was illegal and you could be jailed ultimately for having sex with your lover. The fact that you had lived with them for any amount of years, whatever, made no no difference. So that was one of the worst things. But, of course, the cops then used these laws to entrap gay men. So there were lots of cases where there would be, you know, gay beats, for example, toilet blocks or whatever where people knew you could go and possibly meet somebody. And there would be cops in them pretending to be gay men entrapping you and then, you know, gay men were then beaten off and beaten up first and then arrested and, you know, subject to criminal proceedings and so on. So the fact that you to have consensual sex as a gay man was a crime in itself. And then, of course, at this stage, well, because it was a crime, there was no legal age of consent. But even later, after we'd won um, the decriminalisation of gay sex, which didn't happen until 1984, and there's a whole story in that as well, but... In 1984, the thing that they didn't do was to equalise the age of consent for sex. So for heterosexuals, the age of consent was 16. For if you're if you're a gay man, the age of consent was 21, eventually 18. But not until 2003 was the age of consent actually equalised with heterosexuals. Yeah, and I know as well there was and this isn't just confined to the 1970s, it's happened in the 80s and 90s as well, but a lot of violence particularly towards gay men. Um, There's, you know, famous stories in Sydney of the police like murdering a whole bunch of uh, gay men, like throwing them off the cliffs and the northern beaches of of Sydney. Yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Well, it raises, I think, a more general issue about the police and particularly the New South Wales police in the 1970s were notoriously off the leash. I mean, it's not as if any police force were ever friends to the working class or the oppressed, but the New South Wales police in the 1970s were famously right-wing, anti-union, they took, they took on all kinds of uh, attacks on oppressed people, you know, Indigenous people obviously, uh, women but, you know, gay people, um, LGBT people in general. Gay pe- I keep saying gay people because that's what we said at the time. Uh, so the police had, you know, they had form. Mm. But they were well known for just their general involvement in corruption and, you know, vice of all kinds. Um, And, yeah, there's a famous story about Frank Walker, who was the Labor Party Attorney General at the time, uh, who was 
not really very proactive around our demands for uh, decriminalising gay sex, even though he said he was on our side, but he just couldn't somehow manage to do it. But he later on in the early 80s, I think it was, took on some of the issues of the New South Wales police and their involvement in crime. In this case, their involvement in armed robberies, not turning a blind <laughs> eye to armed robberies, but carrying them out. Yeah. And he he paid for that in big time, well, his family pet did. The family Labrador was ki- uh, kidnapped, killed, and the head was left on the door of Frank Walker's family home. Wow. So that tells Finding you a lot a horse about. Horse head in your bed or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very similar. Yeah. Brace and intimidation. <laughs> yeah. Well, that tells you a lot about the New South Wales police. And in particular, I think that members of the LGBT. BTI community were seen then as they were in the 80s and 90s, those examples that have just been through, you know, a massive inquiry, commission of inquiry, which basically found, yeah, they didn't do anything at best. They didn't do anything. At worst, they were involved themselves in the murders. Well, that was that was the police force that we were dealing with in 1978. Our comrades Well, let's move on to talk a bit about the left, the revolutionary left, the far left. So they didn't just start campaigning around uh, gay rights in 1978. What was the uh, left doing sort of in the lead up to Mardi Gras, before the Mardi Gras, uh, to relate to this issue? Well, as I said before, the whole how did gay liberation come to Australia, as always, I think, well, as so often anyway, with uh, politics here and left-wing politics, international events played a big role. And so the key, obviously, international event around gay liberation was the Stonewall riots um, lasting three days in 1969. And not accidentally, the that was June 1969. Uh, so there had been protests and people coming out and demanding all kinds of legal reforms, really in Australia, from the from 1970, uh, prompted by the kind of impetus that Stonewall had given to everyone to get up and fight and not put up with this shit anymore. So we had we had all of this activity uh, around gay liberation in the very early 1970s, prompted by you know, the incredible impetus that the Stonewall riots, the confidence that they'd given to LGBTI people around the world in many ways uh, after that. But 1978 kind of gets a, a certain kind of kudos because it was the beginning of Mardi Gras as we know it today. But I think it's important to assert that this was not the first thing that particularly the far left at Revolutionary Socialists and so on had done around these issues. In fact, we'd kind of been at the forefront of them. And it's not an accident, I think, that where did the Mardi Gras come from? It came from a call from the United States, from the gay liberation movement there in early 1978, saying that there should be international solidarity, that there had been a series of actually very successful demonstrations in 1977 in the United States against homophobia. And they decided that they put out an international call for people in whatever country it was possible in to take some action for the anniversary of Stonewall in 1978, in June 1978. So we got 
we got that call and who were the two people centrally involved? They were two young socialists, uh, Ken Davis and Anne Talv. They took this as an issue and it was really the origins of the group most associated with Mardi Gras these days, which was the Gay Solidarity Group, which was set up really to make this happen. And you were a member of the IS, the International Socialists. Um, so what was their involvement before Mardi Gras in the gay rights issue? Well, pretty much all those things I just said, we were involved in yeah. all of them. <laughs> so, you know, taking on this issue as the left has to take a stand around this issue. And, you know, because of Stalinism, whole sections of the left prior to the 1970s had been you know, both the, Star, the the Communist Party and even, even worse, the Maoists, had not been, shall we say, very supportive of gay rights. Um, the Maoists in particular maintained a dreadful position because of their links to uh, China and to, you know, Mao, literally the person, that homosexuality is a kind of deviation that will be got Petit rid bourgeois. of. Yeah, it'll be got rid of. Uh, one, you know, once we have socialism, and that's why there's no there's no gay people in China, which is obviously total bullshit, but really reactionary. And so, you know, as anti-Stalinists as Trotskyists, we had been, you know, of the point of view from the early 1970s that these were issues that socialists had a big stake in taking a stand on. Well, let's get to talking about Mardi Gras. So um, it begins on June 24th. Did I get that right? Um, yeah, like why did it happen, I guess? What was the kind of plan for the day and how, and what happened? <laughs> Things obviously didn't go um, completely according to plan. Yeah, well, as I said, there was this call from the United States which the two young socialists answered but then which was very widely taken up by people who were concerned about the issue of uh, our rights and the plan was two fairly normal kind of things for the left at the time. We'll have a rally, march through the city in the morning, that'll be a Saturday morning event and then Saturday afternoon we'll have a big public meeting which discusses the politics and the issues and so on. And out of those discussions in the Gay Solidarity Group came the idea that let's do something else in addition to those things, which is let's have something like a nighttime, more a festival kind of thing. We'll march not through the main the main streets of the city. We'll march down Oxford Street, which was then very much becoming, well, one of the key places where if you're an LGBTI person, you could kind of have a bit more openness, a bit more freedom and so on. We'll march down there and we'll assert our rights in a slightly different way. We'll have music, people will dress up and so on. So, and then I forget now who came up with the, the name, but somebody suggested, well, let's call it a Mardi Gras. It's more of a festival. So we had those three events. So the morning rally, big success actually, 500 people at a demo for LGBTI rights against homophobia and transphobia. Fantastic. That was a big success. Similarly, the afternoon public meeting, two or 300 people, a lot of people came, good discussion, bit of debate and so on. And then the evening event, well, it was going to be fun. Who knew how it would turn out? So a few hundred people turn up at Taylor Square to start and then it marches 
down Oxford Street and there's music playing on the sound truck and people are chanting, you know, people run into their friends who are just there for a night out and they join the rally. Then marchers start chanting out of the bars and into the streets (laughs) and it works because we are walking past all the main bars (laughs) of the gay community at the time and people do start to come out and they join the rally and it gets to Hyde Park, um, College Street, and the cops clearly decide at this point they've had enough of this tolerance and so they say it's finished. In fact, you've got to turn off the sound system, they confiscate the truck, they say the truck can't go any further and so on. And what has been a fairly carnival-y party sort of atmosphere turns and in a very good way. People just think, fuck this shit, we're not putting up with this, we're out celebrating our right to be and we're going to go. And people start chanting, march to King's Cross, we should go to King's Cross. And people do. And so the march just reforms itself without police escort this time because cops aren't quite sure what's going on. They clearly know they don't like it. And so people march down William Street and the plan is to end up at the El Alamein Fountain in the centre of the cross. But a few perceptive people notice as they're going up the hill at William Street towards the big Coke sign that there are all these police vans crossing the bridge across William Street on Darlinghurst Road heading towards the fountain. And sure enough, when the march gets there, it's a trap and the cops have surrounded and just start bashing people and arresting people with, you know, enormous amounts of glee on the parts of the cops. So really importantly the actual campaign around Mardi Gras doesn't end with this, you know, Mardi Gras, obviously celebratory rally, protests, street battles with the police and repression and and mass arrests. It keeps going. I know, Diane, that's how you became involved. You were involved in the Gay Solidarity Group and a follow-up protest. It's what makes you a 78er. Um, So can you tell us a bit about the, um, the Drop the Charges campaign after? Yeah. And really the campaign begins on the night of the 24th of June, on the night of the Mardi Gras. Uh, People are dragged off in the various police vans and so on and they're all taken to uh, Darlinghurst Police Station, Mm. which is one of the most notorious police stations in New South Wales at the time, a place where routinely Indigenous people were taken and bashed. Um, You know, anyone who was seen to be troublesome to the cops, well, Darlinghurst was one of the key places where you were going to cop it. And, of course, the 53 people that had been arrested at the Mardi Gras were taken there and people were, you know, jammed into 24 women were put in a cell that was meant to accommodate two. One um, activist in particular, Peter Murphy, who was in the Communist Party at the time, he was literally uh, beaten senseless by the police um, in in the, in those cells. But the demonstration didn't end with the arrest. People marched from King's Cross to the Darlinghurst Police mm-hmm. Station and then ran off, because no mobile phones in those days, ran off to find public phone boxes to ring every every activist house in Sydney at that stage, got a phone call in the middle of the night saying, got any cash at home? 
bring it down here because we had to collect mm. money for the bail and so on. It was all cash, of course, no ATMs or any other way of getting money, no online stuff. So no Kickstarters just, for arrests. No, <laughs> no, 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 no GoFundMes, none of yeah. that. And so everyone who was at the rally just pulled out every note and coin they had in their pockets. It was just collected in a pile on the on the ground at the on the pavement outside the police station. Uh, f- phone calls were made to lawyers, obviously, to try and get people out. But also phone calls were made to doctors. Um, you know, Dr. Jim Walker, in particular, I remember because he later was my my personal GP. Um, he was called and he came in. And the cops tried to keep the lawyers and the doctors out of the police oh. station just so they could continue torturing so people. Civil liberties, yeah. yeah. Oh. So that was the beginning of the Drop the Charges Solidarity Campaign. It started on the night of the Mardi Gras mm. itself. Then, of course, uh, we had the following Monday, so two days later, the 26th of um, June, the arrestees had to appear at the Central Court, which was in Liverpool Street. Well, it's still there. And of course, there was a protest called for that, and I don't, I don't even know how the word got out, but people just realised they'll be in court on Monday, probably because the Sydney Morning Herald, as well as publishing everyone's age and address and so on, also published that they'll be going to the Central Criminal Court on Monday. So of course, you turn up for a rally, mm. and then we discover at that rally that the police have closed the court. The magistrate has said the court can be open. But the cops, again, it tells you something about the balance of, per, of power within even the, within the state. The cops decide, who cares what the magistrate yeah. says? <laughs> we have decided no one can come into the court. So there's lines of cops across the entrance and so on. So the demonstration is about, I don't know, two, 300 people. Mm. And the demonstration takes place outside. It's very angry. People are really wild about not only the arrest, but this is just adding insult to injury that you can't even go and, you know, see supposed justice being done. And uh, somebody that you both know, our comrade Mick Armstrong, who's one of the leading members of Socialist Alternative still to this day, he's at that demo. He gets arrested. The seven seven people are arrested. It's a at, great photo at of that him rally. looking actually quite gleeful. Getting dragged away from the demo. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's well, great. Yeah, a wonderful photo of him. Uh, being held by four cops who are one on each arm and one on each leg, being dragged away. But he he got arrested and his crime was uh, launching a missile to wit (laughs) an egg. (laughs) Um, And uh, as Mick himself said later, you know, normally he didn't regard himself as a very very good shot, but on this day his aim was in. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) I hope it was rotten. That's great. you were sort of moving from Canberra to Sydney around this time. So what was uh, what were some of the things that you were involved in when you got here as part of that campaign? Well, I was involved in the last of the rallies to drop the charges, which was on the 27th of August 1978. There had been other rallies about dropping, dropping the charges, a big one, actually 2,000 people, uh, which was the largest um, LGBTI rights rally in Australian history to that point, 2,000 people on the 15th of July. Um, This last one that I was involved in was in uh, late August and it was attached to the fourth National Homosexual Conference 
I can't believe we still called ourselves homosexuals at that point. But anyway, uh, so it was the fourth National Homosexual Conference. It was at the Paddington Town Hall and it was went over the, from the 25th to the 27th. Yeah, so the, the conference was, yeah, the conference was publicly advertised. Yeah, the Australian Union of Students were involved in it, but it was broader than just the AUS. Um, and it was, yeah, it was advertised to be from the 25th to the 27th of August 1978, as I said. Um, and as a result of it being publicly advertised, the right decided to organise in response to it. So we knew going into it that there was going to be a right-wing demonstration on Sunday the 27th of August. So Fred Nile, apparently still alive today, but for a long period, uh, a right-wing member of the New South Wales Parliament's upper house, um, I think his organisation eventually became known as the Christian Democrats, but at this stage they were known as the Festival of Light, which I think tells <laughs> you a great deal. Uh, just for listeners' benefit, if you're too young to know the extremely elderly uh, Fred Nile, mm. this is a guy who I think it was like all through the 80s in the later Mardi Gras used to pray sometimes on national television mm. for rain every Mardi Gras, so probably one of the most notorious bigots of New South Wales. Oh, yes, yes, the praying for rain. And God was obviously gay because it very rarely rained on Mardi Gras. <laughs> anyway, so Fred Nile and the Festival of Light in general had called this anti-gay but also anti-abortion rally to be held in Hyde Park on the Sunday, the 27th of August. So not surprisingly, um, the conference had decided that we would march from Paddington Town Hall, which was after all on Oxford Street, we would march from Paddington down Oxford Street uh, and end up at Hyde Park where the, mm. the right-wing demonstration was going to be. So we start doing that. I actually had only just got to Sydney on that morning, parked my car in the back streets of Darlinghurst and then sort of hot-footed it up Oxford Street to join the rally. And when we got down Oxford Street as far as Taylor Square, our ray was blocked by a whole array of cops all the way across Oxford Street, blocking basically every exit from Oxford Street. And then some senior cop, you know, wearing the, the ones with the funny big hats, he got up and said, this is an illegal demonstration you all have to move, you have to get, you have to leave or you will all be arrested. At which point uh, the marshals and so on of the demonstration are yelling through the megaphones, people are dispersing, we are leaving, but having announced that we were not allowed to continue to protest, they then blocked every exit. And so at that there were 109, I think, uh, arrests at that demonstration. There's twice as many people as at the original Mardi Gras, got arrested at this demonstration. The day of the revolution. So in this Drop the Charges campaign, um, this is obviously directed at a state Labor government. What was, what was the attitude of Labor to all of this? They were actually the government, you know, responsible for the police doing the repression of Mardi Gras, but obviously activists often have illusions um, in Labor. You know, were they a friendly ear? No, they were not a friendly ear. I think they wished that the whole campaign would just go away. Um, 
and yeah, one of the best things that uh, looking at some of the old gay solidarity group leaflets was just this constant questioning of who's running the state. Is it the government? Do you control the cops or do they run you? Mm. And sadly, the Labor Party were not really our friends. Um, and some of us had no illusions in this. We'd seen previous Labor governments. This particular Labor government had been uh, elected in 1976 on all kinds of progressive promises and so on. But when it came to dropping the charges, they just wanted to dodge the issue. And I remember one thing, one event in particular, I think it might have been in September 1978, but my memory of what happened when is not great. But we had, a, a, again, a gay solidarity group kind of public forum. My recollection is this was at uh, actually at Trades Hall, sort of the head of the kind of central gathering point at that, at that stage of the trade union movement, and deliberately so. We wanted to connect ourselves to the union movement. Um, and it had been decided, I'm not sure exactly how this, got made, this decision got made, perhaps from different points of view from different people, I think some that we would have uh, Frank Walker. I mentioned him before, the Attorney General that got the dog's head left on the door, um, but this was before that. But he had a reputation as being you know, a left-winger in the Labor Party at a time when that still meant something, unlike, you know, Albanese and people like that, people who had a, a few runs on the board in terms of being a bit more activist-y, a bit more progressive and so on. So I just remember this public meeting that we ha held and Frank Walker sitting there on the stage and clearly some of those who wanted to invite him thought, well, we'll have him there and he'll expose the Labor Party as the kind of right-wing shitheads they are. <laughs> and others thought Frank Walker is our friend and he'll make a great announcement at our public meeting telling <laughs> us how that the New South Wales police are going to be pulled into line and mm. all the charges are going to be dropped. And poor old Frank Walker is actually sitting there on the stage with what can best be described as a shit-eating grin <laughs> of, I wish I wasn't here, because he could really not do any of those things. Say a lot of nothing, yeah. Yeah. So he really couldn't answer the question satisfactorily, which is, what's the point of having you guys in government if you can't rein the cops in and drop these charges, which are all abominable? Mm. So, did he get heckled? Were you heckling? Uh, there was heckling, <laughs> yes. Yeah, good. We did heckle him, of course. Well, some of us did anyway. Um, but, yeah, the Labor Party showed itself in office then as now to be really not wanting to rock the boat. But fortunately, as, as I said before, this was a period in which there were still actually genuinely left-wing people in the Labor Party. And uh, one I really want to mention in particular is George Peterson. George was the um, a member of the a member of parliament at the time. He was the member for Illawarra at this stage. Uh, he'd been a long term member of the Labor Party, but he was actually a revolutionary socialist. He was a Trotskyist. He had been in the Communist Party, uh, and he left the Communist Party in 1956 after Russian tanks rolled into Hungary to suppress a working class revolution that year. So he'd left the Communist Party, but he had kind of got involved with the strand of Trotskyism that thought that what Trotskyists should do is to enter 
the Labor Party in their country and try and work from inside. Well, that's never worked anywhere. But to give him his due, George was, you know, a very sincere revolutionary socialist who saw his role in the Labor Party as to try and make trouble. And so one of the things he tried to make trouble around was the question of LGBTI rights. So he tried to move, as a result of the Mardi Gras, a private member's bill about both to decriminalise gay male sex but also to equalise the age of consent to 16. This is in 1981 he did this and he was suppressed by the rest of the Labor Party for doing this. So his his private member's bills never got a hearing. Uh, but eventually, and it's really because of the work that he did, eventually in 1984, the Labor government did make those changes that I mentioned before in terms of decriminalising gay male sex but doing nothing about the age of consent. But I think it tells you a lot about the Labor Party, how that happened. It was a private member's bill moved by the Premier, Neville Rann. When does the Premier have to move a private member's bill? Well, they have to do it because the Labor Party had a conscience vote around these issues as they did about abortion and a whole series of other issues until well into the 21st century. Uh, But I think it's worth pointing out that there was movement amongst genuinely socialist left-wing people in the Labor Party, but the Labor Party machine itself was able to suppress that for many years. Hmm. Well, it brings us probably to the the next question, which is, you know, about what Mardi Gras won, Um, and not just Mardi Gras, but the whole campaign of over a decade uh, for gay liberation. And obviously it did um, eventually, I think, you know, contribute to the decriminalisation of homosexuality, the eventual, actually not for quite some time, but uh, equalisation of uh, the age of consent. But can you talk a bit more about the kinds of things that this campaign won? Yeah, well, as as I said, I think the why, – why did Neville Rand, the Premier, feel that he had to move a private member's bill really against the right-wingers in his own party? It was because the campaign that Mardi Gras began – did not disappear, that people felt empowered, angry, but also there are people who support us around this issue and we're going to keep fighting about it. So um, one of the first places that it came up was actually about the anti-discrimination law. New South Wales had an anti-discrimination act from 1977, but of course sexuality, sexual orientation and gender were not protected grounds in that legislation. By the early 1980s, I think it was 1981, all these things were, well, no, sexuality and sexual orientation were protected grounds in the New South Wales anti-discrimination law. And this was at a time when virtually no jurisdiction elsewhere in the world had such protections. That, I think, is one of the outcomes of the Mardi Gras, for sure. This did not just take place in a vacuum. Then, obviously, the decriminalisation that we've talked about before, that came came about because there was this ongoing campaign. So I think those were legal outcomes. But the other outcome was just that we kept fighting. There kept being demonstrations, that there was – 
uh, as, as somebody said, I think we're talking about this and there's a little book that's come out about for the 45th anniversary of Mardi Gras last year, that if the police hadn't attacked the first Mardi Gras in 78, there probably wouldn't have been a second one. But in June 1979, we were absolutely determined that there was going to be a second Mardi Gras and a third and a fourth and so on, that this was going to become not just the anniversary of Stonewall, which it always was, but the anniversary of our resistance to a police riot in 1978. And Diane, I know that uh, you've been involved in many, many other campaigns and I'm sure have uh, organised many, many protests since 1978. And one little-known fact about the first Mardi Gras is that it actually won us the right to protest in New South Wales. Um, Obviously, that's a right that is constantly being eroded. There's a whole series of appalling anti-protest laws, which both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party voted through in New South Wales recently. But just that fact that you have a right to protest in New South Wales um, and that the cops have to actually fight in the courts to take that away from you if they want to. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, if there was a piece of legislation that was known by name to every activist, every socialist, everyone who wanted to protest about any issue in the 1970s, it was the Summary Offences Act. Mm. We all knew that act and we all hated it because it was the legislation that gave the police enormous powers over pretty much everything and everyone, but in particular it was an anti-protest law uh, that said that you could not have any protest without police permission And the police could, even if they might have permitted a demonstration to take place, could withdraw their permission at any Mm. point. Mm. And so the whole drop the charges campaign after the first Mardi Gras was always connected to an attack on the Summary Offences Act, an attack on the idea that the police had any right to tell us whether or not we could have a protest. And because the campaign around the Mardi Gras was so successful that we just, we wouldn't give up. There were demo after demo after demo. Um, But we also, there were legal challenges and so on. Court cases came up. Um, The odd magistrate found that, you know, for example, there was one person, I I don't know anything more about this person. Their name was Laurie Steele and their court case from the August 27th protest came up in the court system in October and the magistrate dismissed it because they had been at this demo, the cops had said, you have to all disperse and then had corralled us so that we couldn't disperse. And so the magistrate had found that somebody had no case to answer. And of course, there's Council for Civil Liberties and the other kind of people who were backing the campaign. By this stage, the campaign was much broader than just LGBTI rights, but the broader issue of civil liberties, the right to protest and so on, um, started to have an impact. And so by 1979, pretty much all of the charges had mysteriously Mm. either been dismissed in the courts or in a number of cases, the police just had lost the files. Very convenient. Very convenient, but a sign of things were pushing in our direction and pushing back against the police powers and so on. And I think that's really significant because by defeating the Summary Offences Act, it was not just a victory for 
you know, Gay Liberation, the Gay Solidarity Group, it was a victory for every activist group, for every protest, for every trade union struggle and so on that was going to come into contact with the New South Wales Police, as we all were at various points. Actually, we had a massive victory. And I know it can seem today like, you know, when you when you do a protest, uh, you're supposed to put in a Form 1. Uh, but the Form 1 is not a request for permission. I think this is really important for people to know because people on the left today still talk about asking for permission. We're not asking for permission. We're notifying them. Mm -hmm. And that's a massive difference because now, unlike in the past, before Mardi Gras, where they could just say, you're not allowed to have any protest because we say so and we're the cops, that's it. Now, if they want to stop us, they have to take us to the Supreme Court and we have been there for various mm. campaigns at various <laughs> yes, points and people probably remember in, 2000, in 2020 the big Black Lives Matter protest that took place here. The cops did take us to the Supreme Court trying to use the COVID restrictions, mm. you know, the health measures to say you can't have this protest. By the time of the rally, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day, there's about 10,000 people already at Town Hall and 30,000 eventually gather. Somehow the Supreme Court says it's okay for the rally to go ahead. Mm -hmm. That's what we've won. Mm -hmm. So Mardi Gras won us a whole series of gay rights, at least eventually, and it also won us the right to protest. But Let's talk about Mardi Gras today because it's quite a different beast, I think, and it, you know, changed um, into a more corporate outfit. It has a board now, I believe. So could you just, yeah, I don't know, what do you think of Mardi Gras today? <laughs> I think it's got very little connection to the politics and kind of solidarity, activism, anger that motivated the first Mardi Gras and the first few Mardi Gras as well. I think it's worth noting, when does Mardi Gras take place these days? It does not take place on the anniversary of Stonewall, which is in June. That happened in 1981. And it wasn't just a random desire to choose some other date. It's a, actually quite political, mm. which is we want to move away from the radicalism, the activism mm. and so on that is, you know, I mean, after all, Stonewall was a riot and so was the first Mardi Gras. Mm. You know, in the case of the first Mardi Gras, mostly a police riot, mm. but we, we did give them a few whacks as well. But by the third Mardi Gras, which is what, 1980, there starts to be more pressure from kind of, you know, the gay businesses and so on that actually this is not a very good time of year for us. It's cold. <laughs> I remember the second Mardi Gras in 79 was fucking freezing. Um, and I remember the, the third one in 1980, the last one that took place in winter, our so international socialist contingent, we happened to be behind one of the gay bars kind of floats. And floats even by gay bars in those days were no nothing to write home about. It was just a, a flatbed truck. But there were a bunch of gay men on it wearing those chaps with no asses, and you could literally see the goose pimples on their bums. It was so freezing. So obviously <laughs> the gay businesses just thought this is not very good for business. Uh. And so there was a real push to we should change it to a more um, mm. tourism-friendly time of year, time we can 
actually get out, enjoy Sydney's lovely weather, we're an international city, blah, blah, which is a real kind of contrast to the politics of mm. the original Mardi Gras. And that's just the beginning of it. I think today it's just a major corporate event. I will say something positive, though, which was positive at the time and I, st- I think remains the case, that it made being an LGBTI person acceptable, normal, whatever. I mean, you know, those terms have got all kinds of loaded meanings. But the fact that from fairly early on, once it moved to the, the summer and became a tourism attraction, it also did become an attraction for lots of people that were very happy to be there showing solidarity and support as hmm. observers of the march. And I think that remains the one positive that's got. I don't think there's anything else positive about it these days. I think it is a terrible corporate event designed to make money and pinkwash a range of abominable corporations. Mm. It's probably more to add about uh, how rubbish Mardi Gras has become. One aspect of it is that the cops who, like you said, rioted basically violently and, um, you know, locked people up and had a whole campaign against the LGBTI community of Sydney basically uh, in 78 are now marching in the the the, Mar- the Mardi Gras themselves. Uh, they get a little a little float or whatever. They get to march along. So does the army. Um, it's a whole series of like horrible repressive institutions that have been no friend to LGBTI people uh, are now part of Mardi Gras. Okay, well, yeah, it's one of the obvious disgraces that the police are now part of Mardi Gras. Like how dare they allow these people who have always oppressed us and continue to oppress us to this day. Mm. You know, even in 2013, I remember um, the comrades who were involved in community action for rainbow rights at that point had to call an emergency protest Mm. following Mardi Gras because after Mardi Gras had finished, the cops took it upon themselves to grab a couple of what they thought were young gay men, obviously, you know, their faces fit, and beat them up. Yeah, yeah. And so Community Action for Rainbow Rights called a snap emergency action. 2,000 people came two day, with the two days' notice mm. to protest the police, and yet we have the police uh, welcomed by the a Mardi Gras board and yeah it has a board because it's a corporation mm. so that's the kind of world that we're in that uh and I got I got as a 78er I'm an automatic life member of the Mardi Gras corporation whether I like it or not <laughs> I mean I do I you know I do want to be recognized mm. in that sense but I got this email um a week ago from the corporation telling me that I had until the 31st of January to put my bid in to be part of the parade, as it's called, not a march, as of the parade this year, and alerting me to the fact that I'd better get onto it because there would only be 100 people allowed in the 78ers contingent. Mm, outrageous. That's and how many 78ers were there? <laughs> yeah, well, obviously there's thousands of us and, okay, we're, we're all getting on a bit, but we're not all bloody dead yet. But the whole idea, I, I, I posted this in one of the 78ers kind of chats, you know, Facebook groups that I'm part of, just saying, uh, do others find this appalling? And yes, 
Uh, people did find it appalling that they could limit us. Mm. How dare they? Have they forgotten where this event came from as a kind of things that people were saying? But, yes, it wasn't just me that was saying we're not all dead yet. And, you know, people were angry and I think rightly so, but I think it's quite kind of indicative of the kind of body that Mardi Gras is run by that, well, are we limiting everyone? It's not just you. As if, yeah, so us and American Express and Coles, American Express and Coles, I don't just choose them randomly. They are the two principal sponsors on the website at the moment. I looked them up this morning. So us, 78ers and American Express and Coles, well, we're obviously all equally important. Well, probably they're more important (laughs) because they provide a lot of money. Not to mention all the politicians, regardless of whether or not they're going to vote for a religious discrimination bill, get invited to the floats, you know. Yeah. 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 Well, what do you think? I know like sections of the left here in Sydney like have, you know, the far left even, have an orientation to getting onto the board of Mardi Gras and, change from within, like as a 78, what do you think about that? I think it's a fool's errand. Like I know every year um, there are people who, and part, part of what they do to get onto the board as part of their election campaign is to move a series of, you know, very good motions about, you know, excluding the police, you know, saying things about the various politicians who want to attach themselves to Mardi Gras while attack, attack, attacking uh, LGBTI rights in their role as politicians. These are all perfectly supportable motions and so on. My problem is more with the forum. I feel it's kind of like, would you move these motions at a board meeting of Qantas? Because mm. that's what you're doing, you know, or a board meeting of American Express or Coles. Actually, there's all kinds of forums where you can debate these things out that are progressive. You know, these are good motions to move uh, about these issues at a union meeting or at a meeting of a political campaign about whatever, saying we want to raise these issues here about what should, how should we fight for LGBTI rights, what should be our attitude to the police, you know, what should be our attitude to refugees, what should be our attitude to solidarity with Palestine and so on. But I think the idea of moving these things at a board meeting of a multi-million dollar corporation is really foolish. Mm. Well, yeah, if uh, wanting to join a corporate board is not the key lesson to take out of this for radicals, what is? Like what are the positive lessons out of um, this, you know, Mardi Gras and the the long fight for LGBTI rights since? I think they're all there in the original Mardi Gras, which is really doing more of that. That is what started off international solidarity, the idea that these fights are not fights in a single country. The the call from the um, gay liberation in the United States around the world saying people should do something here. Well, we're in the midst of an unprecedented movement around the world of global solidarity Mm. for Palestine. So I think those lessons are not just confined to LGBTI issues. They're lessons that I think can be learnt in relation to all kinds of other other problems that the capitalist system that we live under creates, which is Mm. clearly did about Palestine clearly did about uh, LGBTI rights then and now. I think the other thing is the 
the way in which the campaign was focused not just on do you personally suffer from this oppression, but get involved because you want to fight the system and the oppression that comes out of it. So, as I said, I, I was a rampant heterosexual at the time and nobody ever said I couldn't go to gay solidarity group meetings because, you know, the, I didn't personally suffer this oppression. So the whole ideas of identity politics, well, no, actually it was just politics. Mm. That is, politics is about what side are you on and I think one of the key lessons out of the Mardi Gras was you took a side and then you had to bloody fight around it. But then the final thing I think is actually about socialist politics, that to be a single-issue activist, and again, it was less common in the 70s for people to see themselves as single-issue activists, that we lived in radical times, that people felt that a revolution against the system as a whole was a possibility and something to be devoutly wished for. So then you had to sort of come to grips with a range of other things like, well, what is the connection between the oppression of LGBTI people and capitalism? What is the connection between the war in Vietnam and capitalism? What is the connection Mm -hmm. between apartheid in South Africa, which we're also protesting against, what is the connection between that and capitalism? So it opened up a series of political issues. And I think one of the key things that I got out, I was already a socialist. I was already actively involved in the International Socialist, one of the forerunners of Socialist Alternative, which of course I'm still a member of very actively today. But I think learning that you can't fight the just the kind of symptoms of the system. You've got to fight the source of all these problems. You've got to fight capitalism and you've got to continue to do that, you know, whatever the issue is. Well, thanks, Diane. As always, you're an inspiration. Um, so glad to have you on the podcast. Chloe and I literally always want to get Diane on like the podcast. Every, <laughs> like every topic, we're like, could Diane do that? Um, so, yes, you'll definitely be on again. And thanks heaps for coming. Such a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Well, if you've enjoyed, as I have, uh, listening to and talking to Diane about her history, not just as a 78er, but as a socialist revolutionary um, for all of her life, um, you should really get involved in Socialist Alternative, the organisation behind the podcast. I'm very proud to be a member of an organisation that has not one, not two, not three, but four 78ers in it. Liz? Five. Oh, sorry, Diane's just given me five 78ers are members of our organisation. So get involved if you'd like to get in touch with socialists in your city. Uh, We will have a stay in touch link in uh, the show notes uh, to this episode. Until next time, though, we have a world to win.